Good morning, Applewood family. And uh, those of you who are guests with us this morning, we're glad you're here. That, uh, that song just pretty much does it. Should we go? <laughs> no, okay, not quite yet. Not quite yet. Um, Chad didn't realize it, but he was speaking prophetically when in his prayer this morning he prayed that, that I would hear the message. <laughs> it's a good... <laughs> yeah. The message is done, but it's got to get into this heart too. So good, uh, good stuff this morning. On the screen are the, uh, the four themes of the uh, traditional four themes of the Advent season. Thank you, Ottoman, for, uh, for reminding us this morning of, of love. I have suggested to you in this season, and I really do believe it, that, that peace, hope, love, joy, they are, they are gifts from God. Those themes that we celebrate in the Advent season, gifts from Him in their truest and most life-impacting form, they, they are gifts that come to those who, who know God, have a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus. And, and I believe that because I think God is the, the origin of all things that are good. Peace, hope, joy, and love. In the way that God gives them, it can be a, a life changer. So what comes to your mind when you hear the word love? When someone says, I love you, what do you hear? I can remember my daughter was in her, her teen years. And I don't know why this stands out to me. But she was on her way out the door somewhere with some friends. And as she walked out the door, closing it behind her, I was within earshot. And I guess we had been talking. I don't even remember that piece of it. And she said, love you, Dad. And the door closed. Now, I knew that my daughter loved me, but that's the first time, at least that I can remember her as a teenager, saying, I love you. Well, it wasn't quite I love you. It was love you. And, of course, you know where this is going more than likely. Feeling kind of special. And then I began to learn over the course of the next few weeks that that was just pretty much a new part of her teen lingo. Because I would hear her on the phone with a friend and she'd hang up. And just before hanging up, love you. It didn't matter if it was a girl or a boy. That bothered me a bit. (laughs) What do you hear when someone says, I love you? In many ways, love is a word I think that has lost its meaning in our culture. We, We have only one word in English. And so we use it to describe everything. That we love. I love God. I love my wife. I love you. But I also like love biking and I love fishing and I love pizza. So what does that mean? Do I love all of these things equally? My wife hopes not. 
So in this, this Advent season, with the word love being part of so many conversations, and in church circles especially, we, we talk about it a whole lot, celebrating the, the love of God made known to us in the birth of His Son. That's the celebration, that is the celebration of Christmas Day, and I just think it's important for us to be reminded of some pretty profound theological truths. Cullen read for us John 3.16 at the end of the candle lighting. Is that not the verse that, that many of us have known for years? For those of us who grew up in the church, it might have been one of the first that we memorized. God loving the world so much that he, that he gave his son. Well, here's the good news. God loves us more than pizza. He really does. It's, it's so, so much more. And I know that that seems like a no-brainer of truth, but, but because we use and misuse the word love in so many ways, I think it's really important for us to, to understand the love of which we are speaking and singing about in the Advent season. You are familiar, some of you, with the three words that are used in the New Testament Greek. There is eros. And that describes romantic love, the love between a man and a woman. There is phileo, which is a love of, of family members and friends. And then there, of course, is a familiar word to us, agape. And that is always reserved in the New Testament to describe the love of God because it intends to describe a perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind, otherworldly, can we go farther with that? Kind of love. The, the writers of the New Testament understand that, that God's love is in a category all its own. And so there is a word that is reserved strictly for his love so that it is separated from the others. Not to say that there aren't some overlaps, that there's not similarity, but not to be confused with the kind of love that we understand and defined by that love within humanity, human relationships. Agape love is not pizza love. It's not family love. It's not friendship love. It is, it is love that comes from God. It is unconditional. That is mind-blowing to me. It is consistent it does not change. It is not fickle. God's love is not emotionally driven. God does not love you more today than he did yesterday. And if you're really good today, he's not going to love you more tomorrow as a result of how you live today. That's, that's the certainty. That's the unchanging nature of God's love. It is a love that is not self-seeking. In other words, God does not love us with a motive of getting something from us. God chooses to love us knowing that if we respond to His love, it opens a door for soul satisfaction and fulfillment in life that nothing in the human realm will provide. God's love is 
other-focused. The Apostle John, his first three letters, end of the New Testament, writes that, that God is love. And because he is love, he sent his Son into the world. The love of God is a very significant theme in the writings of John. It's often tied to the sending of his Son, Jesus. And since that's the point of Advent and our Christmas Day celebration coming up, I want us to spend a few minutes this morning on this final Sunday talking about that very familiar truth. We know the birth story well, don't we? Many of us have, we can't remember when we, when we didn't know the birth story. Perhaps too well. You know I have a phobia of spiritual truths that are too familiar because I think there's significance that is always fresh and always new. And uh, this morning I'm going to, to share with you out of my, my phobia of spiritual truths too familiar. So, so just know that. You're aware that the Advent season is all about Jesus and his coming, right? Yes? We know that. Familiar truth. Okay. Advent is taken from the Latin. means coming or appearing. And you also know that there is, we've talked about this, a, a dual theme to Advent, right? We, we celebrate the first coming. We talk about that as Christmas Day. There is a second coming, sometimes referred to as the second Advent, when he returns for all who love him to take them to the place he promised, John's gospel. John records Jesus saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. His disciples were sad because he told them that he was leaving and that they couldn't go. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will come back and I'll take you to be with me so that you can be with me, so that we'll be together. Now, I know I'm, I'm using my spiritual gift of pointing out the obvious, but I can't help it this morning. Just bear with me for a bit because it's going to get a little worse. When we, uh, when we celebrate the first coming Christmas Day, the first coming of Jesus, what form did Jesus come in? A baby. A human. <clears throat> okay. Very good. And the baby <clears throat> grew into a man in order to fulfill the purpose for his coming. The baby was crucified. Jesus grew into to, to a man. He was crucified on the cross for the sin of humanity. He was raised from the dead. He came back from the dead as a man, although there were certainly some differences in the gospel stories in terms of, of, of his abilities. And as the disciples watched him ascend into the sky... That first chapter of Acts, two angels showed up and they said, why do you stand here staring into the heavens? This same Jesus whom you've watched go is going to come back in the same way that you have seen him leave. Now, what form was Jesus in at that point? An adult? A man? Yeah. Human? Glorified? Yeah. Okay? More familiar truth, right? All right. So, I want us to read a, a very non-Advent text this morning. That seems to have been my, my pattern this year. Uh, the book of Hebrews. It's, uh, it's one of the most, 
mysterious New Testament books, uh, really a, a letter, as, as uh, the epistles were. No mention of the author. No mention of who it was written to. There are no words of greeting that, that give us some clues about either of those, uh, the author or the readers. Because the whole point of the letter is to demonstrate how Jesus is superior to the prophets and even Moses and Abraham and whose sacrificial death is superior to any sacrifices that had ever been done under the law. Jesus' sacrifice, according to the writer of Hebrews, meets the requirements of the law. It worked. It really atoned for sin. Okay, with that in mind, let's stand and read just a few verses, the introduction from Hebrews chapter 1. Here we go. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. My sisters and brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Okay, go ahead and be seated. Wow. Those are some powerful statements. The writer, whoever the writer is, is making no bones about the supremacy of Jesus. Lofty language. The one appointed heir of all things. Creator of the universe. That's consistent with Paul's statements about Jesus in Colossians 1. Everything was made by him and for him. But I think the most stunning statements in the text are, are two. Karen, if we can put that next slide up. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So, is the writer talking about first or second advent Jesus? Is he talking about baby Jesus or is he talking about adult Jesus? I want you to ask your neighbor what they think. Oh, it's quiet in here. <laughs> you know, some mornings there's a lot more conversation than this. What do you think? Should we talk about it? Who wants to start us off? Nobody wants to start us off. Okay. Okay. But the writer introduces the text with this description. Before he leans into the work of purification, sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. And I'm not saying that they aren't linked, but I tend not to think so. Who else? Amen to that, sister. Whom Paul says, before, before him every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Heaven and honor of the earth. Yeah. 
I agree. No argument. Yes. I think so. Doug, you had your hand up a moment ago. Yes. <laughs> okay. Great observation. Yeah, yeah. And very likely, the, the, the writer is writing it after Jesus has returned, you know, to, to, uh, to heaven. I mean, that's okay. I struggle with it every time. <laughs> yes, it, it, it kind of stretches the mind, doesn't it? Just, you know, nod your head yes, because it'll make me feel better. I've been struggling with it for, you know, a, a week or more. Yeah. I think, I think, which of course we all know makes it right. I think the author of this, this letter is referring to Jesus in the flesh from first to last. Certainly not only Jesus in the flesh, but he's referring to, because in some ways it's much easier, and don't we struggle with this? We've talked about this in, in trying to, to, to get a grip on the incarnation. It is difficult to understand God in the flesh. It's easier to understand humanity. It's easier to understand divinity. But when you crash them together in all their fullness in, in the person of Jesus, our, our brains begin to hurt a little bit. Now remember, the point of this letter is to say that Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. Well, when he was revealed, was in his humanity on earth, superior to everything and everyone that ever came before. So, it seems to me that the writer of Hebrews is giving us permission to say if you want to understand the nature and the character of God more clearly than you ever have, then look closely at Jesus' life. Again, God in the flesh? Well, no, not strictly speaking. We know that that's where the analogy breaks down. Because as far as we know, the first time that God ever took on flesh was in the incarnation. Paul talks about the, the kenosis or the, the infamous emptying of himself passage, Philippians 2. Uh, it, it's, it's language of, of one time, one and done. There's, there's no hint that anything like this had ever happened before. You know, even, even the, the, the theophanies that we find in, in the Old Testament aren't to the extent of 33-plus years of living in human flesh. And, by the way, like every other human life, Jesus was a baby growing in his mother's womb until it was time to be born. The angel said to Joseph, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Boy, that must have been so easy for the angel to say. And Joseph to think, oh my. And you must give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So at approximately day eight, 
probably know approximately about it, probably on the exact day, Jesus would have been named Jesus. Isaiah's prophecy, the virgin will give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel. The angel and Isaiah are both talking about a baby. So there's that sense of now and not yet. And to Mary, the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born as a baby will be called the Son of God. I think my favorite proclamation of all comes from Simeon, that mysterious old fellow. When Jesus is eight days old, brought to the temple to be circumcised and named Jesus, which means, of course, God saves. Simeon had been told by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die before he saw God's anointed one, before he saw God's Messiah. And when he saw Mary and Joseph come into the temple with that baby, Scripture tells us he took the baby in his arms and he said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He was referring to the baby in his arms. And so I think that, that those words that, we, that you have, have discussed with your neighbor, I think they're, they're referring in a, just in a very mysterious kind of way to Jesus from birth to resurrection as a baby to ruling Lord. He is the radiance of God's glory as an infant, and adult. He is the exact representation of God's being as an infant and an adult. And I would guess that, that most of us can easily make that connection, as I've said, more with, with his adult life, but, but maybe not as easily with, with the baby Jesus. So let me say just a, a few words about those descriptions. Throughout Scripture, God's glory is all about his presence. The writer of Hebrews uses the word radiance. It's the only time it is used in the New Testament. And, and as we find the word used in other ancient literature, it carries the idea of splendor or intense brightness. Think about John's description of Jesus as the light of the world. The brightness of God lighting up a dark world. Think about Isaiah's prophecy about Jesus. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, upon a people living in darkness, a light has dawned. The presence of God has come in a way that lights things up. The radiance of God's glory, His light and life-giving presence came closer to humanity in Jesus. Because Jesus took upon himself our flesh. And he lived among us, or as Philip Yancey likes to say, he moved into our neighborhood. God present, God closer than humanity has ever experienced before. The brightness of God coming in the presence of that baby with all of the promise and the future that that baby holds in his little body. The second phrase, exact representation of God's being. 
Man, this one just blows my mind. The writer of Hebrews, I think it's fair to say, is not suggesting that God is a baby. We get that. The Greek word used for exact representation, we translate that way, is often used in in ancient literature to describe seeing qualities. So interesting. Seeing qualities of a parent in their child. It's family resemblance. My daughter-in-law, Jessica, is an over-the-top incredible mother who pours her life into her children. And, and I'm sure Vic and Kathy have seen this in, in a number of times as I have. I'll see a look on Nora's face, certain circumstance or situation, I think, oh, that's Jess. Or she'll, she'll respond in a certain way, and I think, oh, that's her mother. Even down to using words in sentences in response to a situation or someone that I'm not even sure she knows what those words mean. But she's heard them out of her mother's mouth, and she's heard them in a context that is similar to the one in which she finds herself. Family resemblance. Now, is my granddaughter Nora Jessica? No, she's Nora. But boy, is she a lot like her mom. That's the language that the writer is using here. He's saying that in Jesus, we we don't see the Father, as in exactly the Father, because Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4 that that the Father is, is spirit. Frankly, I think... God is spirit, three in one, one in three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Jesus did us a favor, if I can say it that way, when he took on flesh and moved into our neighborhood and suddenly gave us an opportunity to begin to see and understand God in a way that we hadn't seen before. He's a trustworthy picture of the character and nature of God. When the disciples said to Jesus, Show us the Father. Jesus said what? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Did he mean, I am the Father? No. He meant, if you've seen me, if you watch me, if you listen to my life, you are seeing the character and nature of God. Are you with me? Okay. So, here's the point of the sermon. Finally, praise the Lord, they say. Have you ever wondered why a baby? I have. It it seems to me that Jesus could have just sort of appeared on the scene at about age 30, maybe a few years prior, and then just lived out his life as we see his life lived out in the Gospels. Minus the birth story. Does that not seem reasonable? I mean, we wouldn't have been the wiser. Who would know? But, again, my spiritual gift, pointing out the obvious, he came as a baby. That must mean something. God 
in human womb growing and developing for nine months. And then, and then you add to that, born into obscurity and poverty. Oh, and by the way, his birth created an enormous scandal for his mother and her husband-to-be? What is that all about? Well, in Philippians 2, Apostle Paul writes that Jesus, the eternal Son, did not consider equality with God, that is, His standing as a member of the Godhead, Trinity, He didn't consider that as something that He needed to cling to or use for His own advantage. Some interpretations, translations give it that spin. Why? Because he wasn't going to lose any of his divine status by coming to earth and taking on the form of humanity. And so Paul says, rather, he humbled himself. He humbled himself and came to earth, God in the flesh. He humbled himself. Jesus, the eternal Son, humbled himself. That means, I think, that God humbled himself. God? Humble? Have you ever considered that possibility? That the the love we celebrate in this Advent season did not come from a God who had something to prove, but rather something to give. So the Son given came wrapped in a humble, helpless package. As Craig said, he put himself out there so that we could more clearly see and understand the nature the exact representation of our God. A nature that I believe was there all along, but now, according to the writer of Hebrews, was on display like never before. From start to finish of Jesus' life, the character and nature of God revealed. I have to read for you just a few paragraphs from a book that we were given called Moments with the Savior. Some of you may have this. I have read this text so many times, and in part it is responsible for this sermon that I hope makes some sense in our lives. I'll try not to cry. I've read it so many times. Oh, my gosh. He describes the, the situation, the circumstances Mary and Joseph find themselves in. The stable, no room in the inn, the smell of the animals, the, the whole thing. <clears throat> and then he says, the Messiah has arrived. Elongated head from the constricting journey through the birth canal, light skin, as the pigment would take days or even weeks to surface, mucus in his ears and nostrils, wet and slippery, 
from the amniotic fluid. The son of the most high God umbilically tied to a lowly Jewish girl. The baby chokes and coughs. Joseph instinctively turns him over and clears his throat. And then he cries. Mary bears her breast and reaches for the shivering baby. She lays him on her chest and his helpless cries subside. His tiny head bobs around on the unfamiliar terrain. This will be the first thing the infant king learns. Mary can feel his racing heartbeat as he, as he gropes to nurse. <clears throat> Deity nursing from a young maiden's breast. Could anything be more puzzling or more profound? Joseph sits exhausted, silent, full of wonder. The baby finishes in size. The divine word reduced to a few unintelligible sounds. And then for the first time, his eyes fix on his mother's deity straining to focus, the light of the world squinting. Tears pool in her eyes. She touches his tiny hand, hands that once sculpted mountain ranges now cling to her finger. She looks up at Joseph and and through a watery veil, their souls touch. He crowds closer cheek to cheek with his betrothed. Together they stare in awe at the baby Jesus whose heavy eyelids begin to close. It has been a long journey. The king is tired. And so with barely a ripple of notice, God stepped into the warm lake of humanity. Without protocol and without pretension, where you would have expected angels, there were only flies. Where you would have expected heads of state, there were only donkeys, a few cows, some mice, maybe a sheep or two, and a scurry of curious barn mice. Except for Joseph, there was no one to share Mary's pain or her joy. Yes, there were angels announcing the Savior's arrival, but only to a band of blue-collar shepherds. And yes, a magnificent star shone in the sky to mark his birthplace, but only three foreigners bothered to look up and follow it. Thus, in the little town of Bethlehem, that one silent night, the royal birth of God's Son tiptoed quietly by as the world slept. My brothers and sisters, Jesus, the Eternal One, in the fullness of time, Scripture tells us, humbled himself. John's description is pretty plain. The Word was made flesh and indeed dwelt among us. A.W. Tozer says about this, I confess I would have liked to have seen the baby Jesus. But the glorified Jesus, yonder at the right hand of the majesty on high, was the baby Jesus once cradled in the manger straw, taking on a body of humiliation. He was still the creator who made the wood of the manger that he was lying in. It occurs to me <clears throat> that God 
could have demanded that we love him, which is the way that we might be inclined to, to hear or understand the commandments. But I think the birth and the life and the death of Jesus reveal to us an invitation to, to know God in a way that is impossible apart from his son. We are invited into a relationship of intimacy through the work of his son on the earth. Brothers and sisters, I think the value of the birth of the baby is that it shows us a humility and a vulnerability that God just doesn't decide to put on display for the sake of a good Christmas story. It reveals to us a very precious, a very amazing nature of the God whom we follow. A God who is humble and a God who is inviting. And my prayer is that in this, the last few days of this Advent season, as we move into Christmas Day and then the celebration of Christmas tide beyond that, that we will be reminded often that this wonderfully familiar story has been given to us so that we might know and understand God, perhaps in a way that we never have before. Amen? Well, praise team, why don't you come on up and, and lead us. <clears throat> Our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I'd be the first to confess that I'm speaking about mysteries that I don't really understand. My heart's desire, and I know the desire of your people here, is that we be people of truth, that we be people who are honest with your word as you have revealed yourself in it. And so... This morning, <clears throat> our heart's desire is to, to, to elevate, to elevate the, the birth of Jesus, to realize that in the scope of eternity and in your sovereign plan for the salvation of lost and broken people, that baby's life, the first 30 years of which we know very little about, is really important. And it all started. It all started on the day of his birth. When the Son of God took on flesh and came into our world, vulnerable and, and needy and helpless. And I don't even know what to do with that, oh God. But my prayer is that for myself and for my brothers and sisters in this place, that as we celebrate on Christmas Day, the wonder of our Lord and King humbling himself in a way that is just beyond imagination would grab our hearts. Let us see you for all that you are, both in your humanity and in your divinity as they come crashing in together for our salvation.